Amazing. Okay, so I went on Instagram and I asked people to send in questions for you. And a lot of the questions are marriage related or other stuff related. So we're just going to go through the questions and then inshallah, you can drop your opinions on them. The first question right. is one that I think is a good place to start. It was what made you want to become an imam? And I think that this can help us get to know you more as well. Yeah, so I never actually wanted to become an imam. I think that's uh, the, 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 it, the most interesting thing about why I'm even doing what I'm doing. I never imagined that this is where I would be. Uh, my journey actually to study Islam started right after 9-11. I was a senior in high school when 9-11 happened. And uh, I wasn't very practicing, wasn't very religious, didn't really care that much. I, I grew up in South Mississippi, didn't really have a Muslim community. So just, you know, kind of was like a Southern redneck kind of just growing up down there. But um, yeah, so my my interest peaked because the entire world was now talking about Islam and my family's Muslim and I didn't know how I fit in. So I made a decision to formally go and study Islam. There was just a very random thing. Nobody in my family was ready for that. Uh, I ended up in the International Islamic University in Islamabad, Pakistan. I was there from about 2005 to 2011. That was really at the height of the, the war in Afghanistan and got to experience some really interesting situations there, including the turmoil that spilled over to Pakistan and all that kind of stuff. But my my real intent was just to understand Islam at a deep level personally. That's why I went. But obviously, when I was studying, uh, you know, our teachers and scholars and even the faith itself just encouraged me to, you know, take a position of, you know, if you if you're learning this stuff, you should also go and share and teach this stuff. So when I came back, uh, you know, I I decided to apply for Islamic school so I could teach uh, in Muslim communities and that worked out. And then there was a vacancy. I was uh, when I when I started at the Roswell Community Masjid. They hadn't had an imam previously. And so I was the their first imam and it was my first time being imam. But it worked out really nice. Uh, everything gelled pretty well, and uh, they they gave me a, a good platform to to start, you know, my my teaching and my and my work to serve the community. So that it just was really random. I had never intended on becoming an imam. Sounds so good. It sounds like one of those dramatic stories. I like it. I like it because a lot <laughs> of people like they meant it. Like they knew they were gonna become an imam. They waited their entire life. This was really impulsive. It sounds good though. The next one is. How do you struggle to accept that a closed door is closed for a reason? How do you struggle to accept that a closed door is closed for a reason? You know, it's uh, there's there's a uh, part of our faith is like, you know, the word Islam means submission. And at, at some point, and I, and I know people want to always have like a rational explanation for everything. But, you know, I, I just like to be a little frank sometimes and say there's not always a, a rational explanation for everything, especially when you're looking for something that's going to make sense to you in a very specific way. Uh, part of submission is really giving up, right? It, it, it's giving up. And, you know, when you are trying to do something and the doors keep closing, and especially if you're praying istikhara about it, then those doors are closing in response to your dua, right? So that's one important thing, I guess, to remember is you should always do istikhara. 
And then if you find those doors closing, then they're closing as a response to your dua. The beautiful thing about istikhara is you're going to get exactly what you made dua for. And in the dua, you're saying, Allah, if this is good for me, make it happen. If it's bad for me, take it away from me and take me away from it. So if you've done that portion and those doors are closing, then you know you're getting an answer to your dua in a very specific way. So it, it's kind of, if, you, if you're doing the istikhara, then it's really a response to your own dua that you made. If you're not, it's time to do istikhara so that you can have that clarity. Istikhara gives you, it takes off such a huge burden from your shoulders because, again, whatever happens is exactly what you ask for. If it's good, make it happen. If it's bad, take it away. So that gives you peace of mind. And a lot of people don't think of, they think of istikhara as, uh, I'm going to pray it and then I'm going to get a dream, right? But you're look at the words of the dua itself and whatever happens is exactly what you made dua for. And I think that's that's the way I've found a lot of, you know, peace of heart and mind in, in the decisions that I've <laughs> that I've had to yeah. face. So one thing that I know I have heard a lot about, and like this was on TikTok, and I've seen lots of people talk about this, even as a, like a Pakistani hear this, where people have this concept that like someone else can do istahara for you, or someone's dream is your sign for istahara. And I, what's your take on that Islamically? No, I mean, whatever the Prophet Wasallam taught us is, is, is what it is. And he said, when, I, when you have a matter, you know, uh, that you're that you need to make a decision on pray istikhara. And the words of the dua tell you exactly what's going to happen. Right. So Allah, if this is good for me, make this my qadr. Right. That's that's make this what's been determined for me. So you're asking Allah to, you know, write it in your, your decree and so on and so forth. And if it's not good for me, take it away from me and take me away from it, meaning literally create distance. Right. Put obstacles, close those doors, whatever it is. The dua itself tells you what to expect. Now, you might see signs in a dream. You might see, you know, one of the things the Prophet ﷺ also taught us was after your istikhara, also consult uh, consult people that you trust. So people that know you, people that you trust, ask them and just, you know, see what advice they're giving you. And those, if they're telling you to go away from it, then that's, you know, your, your, your dua is leaving you, uh, leading you that way. And if they're telling you go for it, then your dua is leading you that way. One of the things I like to tell people is, if you know, if like, let's say you, go, you want to apply for a job and you don't know if you should or not, make istikhara and then apply for the job. If you get it, it's good for you. If you don't, it was bad for you, right? So it's literally about going forward with your decision and then just, uh, you know, allowing Allah to make the results uh, happen, whatever they are. But yeah, other people seeing a dream. I know there was a show uh, when I was in Pakistan, I saw a lot of weird stuff, but there was a show you could call in and have some guy who wasn't even on camera do istikhara. Like, I, I don't understand what it was. But it was he would you would basically tell him something and he would decide for you. And that's not, yeah, that's not the case whatsoever, especially from someone that's not even visible on camera. Uh, you know, that that's just scam one on one right there. Yeah, I think the thing is with the Sahara, lots of people use it. I hate to say this, but kind of like religious manipulation. They try to be like, yeah. well, religious manipulation they're like well i saw this so that means you do this i feel like it also comes down rationally like how do you feel about the person you don't just go off of i my mom had a dream my brother had a dream. i just find that i don't i agree though but the next one is let's see how do you deal with breaking promises and falling back into the same sins over and over again the process of being human uh now obviously the the bigger the sin the uh the less that just repentance needs to be a part of the picture and obviously some corrective action, but it really depends on the sin and the nature of the sin. Imam al-Nawi, rahimahullah, in his, uh, you know, he lists out like the elements of tawbah, right? That you regret it in your heart, that you, you know, say istighfar with your tongue and you make a commitment to not go back to it again. And then if, if it takes away a right from somebody else, then you return that person's right. 
and the scholars is basically say you, you know you this is the process you're gonna you're gonna you're bound to be a sinful person that's why repentance is there and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala hints at that in his you know in his name at-tawwab al-ghaffar you know they have that sense of uh over and over again right he's repent he accepts your repentance over and over again he is forgiving over and over again uh and so it's it's just it's built into it and it you know you're you're bound to sin if you if you overcome one you're going to have another uh if you can't overcome one and then that's going to be kind of your your sin that you're you're going to have to you know be uh, be challenged with for the rest of your for the rest of your life maybe but you should never be complacent and accept uh that this is okay but definitely repent and uh, in addition to that, you know, talk to someone that can help you change habits. I think one of the things our community is lacking is the the the, the art and science behind how do you change a habit, right? And, and it's very, very possible. A lot of us have already done that. If we, if we didn't pray and we started to pray, we've changed and built a new habit. We just sometimes go to a certain extent and then we stop. Uh, and so as a spiritual growth process, you know, you can literally sit down, take one sin that you have and make it a project to overcome it. And it could take time, but you can definitely do it. So repentance is is definitely important. That's like the minimum that should be there. Uh, and then really finding someone that's uh, that understands you, that is willing to work with you uh, and helping you change a habit, even understanding how, you know, you guys can even do research on. What are the components of a habit and how do you change it? There's like there's books out there called like atomic habits and and all that kind of stuff that give you really good insight into like human psychology and how we work. Uh, and you can leverage that to overcome certain things about yourself that you don't uh, that you don't like. Really good. I agree, obviously. So what is your this is the next one? What's your opinion on forced marriages? Oh, there's no such that's not halal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there has to be consent. If there's no consent, the marriage is not, uh, you know, it, 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 it's not, it's not sound. And it, it, if it goes to a court, if it goes to a judge, if it goes to an imam, they should annul it immediately. They should cancel it, void it. It's called fasq in the, uh, in the, uh, the, the fifth terminology. Uh, they, they should cancel it outright. There's a clear case when a woman went to the Prophet ﷺ. She said, my father married me off, but it wasn't without my consent. I was young at the time. And the Prophet ﷺ said, well, it's your choice. You want to be stay with him or you don't want to go. You want to stay with him. I'll, I'll cancel the marriage right now. And she said, no, I'll stay in the marriage, but I just wanted, it's a very specific hadith, I believe, uh, I'll have to look where it's at, but she very specific, it's a well-known hadith amongst the fuqaha, uh, she said, you know, I just wanted to make it clear that women should not be married without their consent, I just wanted to have that clear, and so that's something that's encoded within the hadith literature, within tradition, uh, and I believe within uh, all schools of Islamic law that a woman's consent must be given, uh, and obviously a man's consent as well, I mean, he can't be forcefully married either. Uh, and so that if the consent is not there, the marriage is not uh, technically valid. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the parents need to hear that one. I got a little bit of a 40 plus audience. Just a few. We'll crank it up for them. Oh, you know what? Let's let's attack that 40 plus. Audience <laughs> yeah, then. let's go. Uh, emotional pressure on, <laughs> you know, putting your making your kids marry this person or that person or, uh, you know, uh, refusing to accept who they're bringing outright as a, as a possible candidate for marriage. One of the things people have to understand about marriage, it is the right of the individual man and woman. Whether people want to accept it or not, that's what our religion says. When the Prophet was willing to uh, avoid this, this woman's marriage, it was because she hadn't given consent. Uh, you know, the, the, the culture of the Prophet was not uh, to put pressure on people. That's really interesting, right? It was not to put pressure on people. It was a very relaxed environment, meaning, hey, it's your decision. You get to decide. 
and his training of his his companions was such that hey it doesn't matter who comes from where or what background etc we're all muslims that's why he has so many hadith uh, that you know people are from they're all children of adam and adam is from dirt uh, you know uh, allah has removed this this uh, this pride of the days of ignorance and your 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 arrogance about your lineages and all this kind of stuff and that's when he said at the end all of your children of adam and adam is from to, uh, uh, you know from from the dust from the dirt uh, there's no virtue over an Arab, over a non-Arab, no one over a non-Arab, over an Arab. So there's so many hadith where he made that clear to his community. And then the way that they got themselves got married, it's just a clear example of it. And then you fast forward to today, and it's unbelievable the kind of stuff that people are demanding from marriage. And it's yeah. it's 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 unbelievable. It's not just borderline un-Islamic, it's cross the border un-Islamic. Uh, people's rights are being prevented. Uh, I, you know, I speak to you know women all the time who are getting older and they're not able to get married because their parents are saying no to every single person they bring, and they don't understand that it's not just. The, I mean, within so I, I, I tend to follow the Hanbali school of fiqh, and I'll just be very outright in saying this, and I believe this uh, applies for uh, in, in, in practical reasons. It applies to uh, other madhabs as well. But if the wali of the woman is, you know, being unreasonable in, you know, preventing her marriage, then he gets removed from the equation. And, and wow. you know, Muslim leaders take over the wali position because you cannot deny somebody their right to, to marriage. So there's a lot. Of, I mean, our fiqh covers a lot of stuff. The, you know, the, 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 the judges have, you know, Islamic uh, law gives a lot of, uh, you know, authority. To, to Muslim leaders to be able to ensure that people's rights are, are, are respected. And people are just not used to it. That's the thing. They're just not used to it. And obviously, we don't live in a system where, uh, you know, that, that authority exists, I mean, in, in one way, shape, or form. But those are rights. And there are definitely ways to make sure people get their rights, even if their families are being preventative. That is so good. I agree. The 40 plus is probably cranking up right now. I love it. Okay, the next question actually went into that went into this, which was like, oh, how do you do with like interracial, mar interracial marriages and like culture differences? Because your parents won't yeah. accept it. But this comes right back into what you just said. Yeah, I mean, you so there. this is a process. So, you know, what, what I just mentioned, I've never had to do, but I've always let it be known that it can be done that uh and I've, I've spoken to to fathers as well and told them look you you can't deny someone their rights if you continue to do so then islamically speaking you get removed from the equation and i have no problem honoring that right right so i'll step up and i'll act as the wali uh and i always make it clear because this is our job we're supposed to make you know the religion clear for for people we're not supposed to conceal it we're not supposed to you know cater it to their feelings or or their cultures or whatever that's not okay so I make it known, and then I try to work with the families as much as possible to make it happen. And we've there's plenty of success stories where it's taken some time, but I would rather spend time in getting everyone on board than starting of you know a, you know than telling people go start your marriage and then you know uh, you know burn bridges with your parents and this and that. People can always change, hearts can always change, and it takes a little bit of work and effort, but they can definitely get there. And if it's been a long time and they're not getting there, then obviously you have the rights to be able to go and do what you need to do. But it's always worth the time. I mean, you know, respecting our parents and making sure that our family structures are a part of our lives is extremely important Islamically as well. And this is where you want to get people involved that will actually, you know, sit down and do the hard work of talking to you, talking to your family, trying to make amends. Uh, sulh is what it's called, you know, the Islamic concept. 
reaching out to their hearts, trying to soften their hearts. All of this is also a practice within uh, within our faith. And so that needs to be done to convince people as much as possible that, you know, this this is what needs to be done. And for the most part, it works. I've seen it works for the most part. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah, yeah. I think so too. I just think it's a matter of, you know, if there's a will, there's a way type of thing. That's really it. The Absolutely. next one is how do you deal with abusive parents? Like you want to respect them, but you're living with them and you have an abusive relationship with them. Yeah. So abuse, abuse is haram, right? That's, that's very clear. Uh, whether it's verbal or physical and people, again, we, our cultures tend to normalize this behavior, but it's not, I mean, there, there's clear ayat in the Quran uh, you know, Surah Al-Hujurat, where Allah says, Ya amanu la yaskhar min qawmin. Right? Uh, and, uh, you know, don't, don't mock and ridicule other people. Don't call them by offensive nicknames. Uh, you know, all this, this very clear text in the Quran. And uh, a command gives rise to an obligation, meaning there's no, uh, there's no uh, indication here that these commands are for preference, right? It's clearly for obligation. You are not allowed to mock and ridicule other people. Uh, don't spy. Don't backbite each other. So these are all very clear directives in the Quran. And unfortunately, you'll find that sometimes families engage in this kind of behavior. They'll mock and ridicule each other in the home. Uh, it's verbal abuse. They'll, they'll use offensive nicknames. They'll say things to each other that trigger other people in their families. And by the direct text of the Quran, you're not supposed to be behaving this way. So verbal abuse is is, is haram. You're supposed to use, you know, Allah says, you know, use good words with the people. And the people that have the most right of your good treatment are the ones you're responsible for. They're your family. So these concepts, for some reason, I don't know why we have them backwards. We're supposed to be more kind and more generous to our families than to other people. But, you know, it's so, you know, we, we won't backbite other people, but then we'll backbite our family or... We won't mock other people, but we'll, we'll mock members of our own family and ridicule them. And then, you know, physical abuse, it's not allowed for you to hurt another person. That's, I mean, even the the acts of physical discipline that are mentioned within our, uh, our, our religion is not about pain. It's not about hurting. It's not about causing injury. And so anyone that thinks that if you're hurting someone, that's okay, it's not. It's, I mean, it's just clearly not. Even those uh, references to physical discipline are not references to uh, abuse and pain and, and and damage and injury and so on and so forth. So that there's a clear differentiation between uh, between the two. So that's that that's haram. That's haram behavior. And if the abusers are using religion as a justification, then somebody needs to step up and tell them, no, you're the ones that are doing something haram. You're the one that needs to have sabr and patience. You're the one that needs to stop. And we need to help. You know, the Prophet ﷺ said, if you, you know you 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 help the people. If you see something evil, something wrong. You stop it with your hands, change it with your, or speak out against it with your tongue, or at least feel bad about it in your hearts. And we need to stop telling people that are victims uh, that you need to have patience. No, victims need help to get to safety, and the abusers need to be told you need to have patience. Allah talks about anger and you know how those that have rage need to restrict it. Those are the righteous that can suppress their rage. That can forgive people, let let people let things go with people, and you know uh, Allah loves those that that would do good, and so the, the the context of you know those that are getting angry and not controlling it, those are the ones that need to be told to have patience, and those are the ones that need to be given the Islamic reminders of what it means to behave as a as a as a person with good adab. 
and the victim needs to be helped. No one that is in a bad situation should be left and, and said, hey, deal with it, right? That's that's just not the way our religion works. Our religion works on helping people, uh, you know, changing their situations. I mean, how much uh, how much literature is there about helping the oppressed uh, and being there, you know, uh, the Prophet said, you know, help the oppressor and the oppressed. Obviously, the oppressed, you, you get it. And the oppressor, he said, by stopping their oppression. And so that's it's a very clear thing. But again, uh, we I, I don't know how we get things mixed up. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't much. either. I just think it's more of like, I want this to fit my situation. So I'm going to do it like this type of thing. Absolutely. It, and it, it it's, it's sad. It it's really sad because these these misunderstandings and mix ups are really affecting people's perception of the deen. And that's what's it's causing a lot of harm to that. It's affecting generations at this point, like generations on generations. Absolutely. Yeah. The next one is, are we really forgiving someone if we actually do forgive them, but we still do feel like an off way about them? You know, uh, forgiveness doesn't mean you forget, right? Mm -hmm. And I know we say, oh, like forgive and forget, but you don't have to. You don't have to forget. It depends on what it is. Um, and it depends on people's personalities. Like, you know, some people are just... I'm a, I'm a pretty petty person. Like I'll forgive people, but I'll always just kind of be like petty about it. And it's you know it's I it's it's just a part of who I am. But I need to be more aware of that, and not let my pettiness get in the way that I'm like like treating people. Yeah. But you don't have to forget, and it's not a smart idea to forget. I mean, if someone did something really bad, it's one thing to forgive them, but you don't want to just put yourself in a situation where you allow yourself to be vulnerable like that again. Especially if we're talking about uh, someone taking advantage of your rights and 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 you know and your and just you as a person. It's perfectly fine to keep that person at a safe distance and say, I forgive you for this, meaning I won't, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to hold you accountable. I don't expect any compensation or whatever. You're forgiven. I'm not going to hold that against you. That's one thing. And then the other side is I'm still going to be very cautious about how I deal with you. That's, and that's perfectly fine. So, you know, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean in all circumstances that you, that you are um, naive to the way people can behave, especially if your forgiveness doesn't change who they are and if they're the same person and they're doing the same thing. So you don't have to be naive, but you can you can definitely, you know, let things go. And forgiveness uh, for other people, it's interesting. It has a lot more to do with how you personally can move on more so than it does with them, uh, which is I think is a really interesting concept. Like if you can forgive someone, then you can kind of move on with your life because you're not thinking about that which they did to you. You're not allowing it to consume your thoughts and then get in the way of your life. So it also has a lot to do with with you as a person and moving on from what happened. I agree because it's about setting yourself free. It's all that niche. Yeah. So this is interesting. I know that you're one of the only imams in Georgia that does divorce cases, right? I remember you mentioned that a while ago. What is the biggest yes. reason that people get divorced? The, so unfortunately, you know, the the biggest reason that I end up processing divorces is uh, cases of abuse. That's the biggest, that's one of the biggest reasons um, that, that I process them. But I think if you look at statistics, a lot of people end up getting divorced because of uh, just, you know, incompatibility or financial, you know, uh, issues or things like that. Uh, I mean, I've, I've dealt with cases where people have been married for, you know, 20, 25 years, and then they're getting married. And in some cases, they find out that, you know, the spouse was cheating on them. Okay. Uh, in other cases, they find out that, um, you know, they just like they've they've grown so far apart that they can't live peacefully at home. And and you know, if you if you kind of look at the ayah that where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about marriage, right? Uh, 
at Aya, where you know, we, we created from you, from amongst yourselves, mates, uh, 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 sorry, yeah, as so that you can live in tranquility with each other. So, like in this ayah, Allah even lays out the framework of like a, a good marriage, uh, like even at with just at some basic level, right? That when you're together, there's tranquility and peace. Uh, and that there's there's genuine love and there's genuine compassion and kindness in, in that relationship. And so these three components that Allah mentions are extremely important because what I've noticed is when these three break down in a marriage, that's when it leads to divorce. If there's no tranquility at home anymore, then it's it's bound to end up uh, in, you know, in a very bad situation or, or to a divorce. If there's no genuine love, then you're going to behave in a way where you're treating your spouse more like your enemy. And I've seen this a lot. I mean, people that have lived together for years are now at at war with each other, uh, and um, and then just that that compassion and kindness. If if you just can't be kind to the other person, I mean, they're not going to put up with you anymore. So these are three very important components that Allah mentions, and this is this is what we have to keep in mind. If these three things are not fostered and kept in a marriage, the marriage will break down because that's literally what Allah said are the building blocks of a uh, of, of a good marriage. I agree. Yeah. I think, do you feel like the compatibility, do you feel like to a degree, if people ask each other the questions that should have been asked before marriage, you know, in a halal way, don't you, do you feel like it would have been a lot less in regards to divorce rates when it comes to compatibility? Because obviously someone like you figure out who they are once you're really with them, with them. But like, there's so many divorce cases where like they get divorced over things that like you could have decided before marriage. Yeah, I think that's more like a case by case. I mean, we, we know of marriages that are successful where the couple didn't even know much about each other. Uh, and this really has to do more with the way, the maturity with which you handle a relationship and problems in a relationship. I think that's the main factor. People are different. No one's no one's 100% compatible. I would even say no one's really even 50% compatible. I mean, we are so different. Uh, and that... that if you if you marry someone that's just like you, I don't know, that kind of it would be boring. I mean, you wouldn't get to like explore something new or learn something about the other person. So I'm not, you know, I, I don't necessarily, or I guess it's how you define compatibility. Uh, the way I kind of define compatibility is usually with like, what are your top five values that are non-negotiables? And the other person has to either agree or agree to respect those values. Um, that to me is compatible enough because I mean, uh, you like you said, you never really know someone until you've you know some of the scholars will say like you don't know someone until you've traveled with them, uh, but when you live with someone, that's what you know. People put on a, a facade all the time, and I think it's natural. You know, we we dress up nicer uh, when we as we normally would when we're at home. We act more nice than we normally would than we are at home. You know, we we all put on that facade because you know we're we're worried how people are going to perceive us, and then when. We get comfortable with people. We let our guards down and we start acting like more of who we are. So that's bound to happen. But if you are genuinely a a mature, a spiritually mature, and, you know, obviously just a, a, a decent person, then you'll be able to make the, that, that marriage work in, in the way that you behave in that relationship. I agree. Simplified. That's how it should be. So let's come on our last few questions. This one right. is something interesting, and I want your opinion on this because you're an imam. I don't know how relevant or how much you've kept up with this, but I think you probably do know. I feel like this is also a question. When people are, I'm, I hate to say this, but people that might not have as much as knowledge are sitting there canceling different imams and sheikhs and saying, oh, this person's deviant, this person's bad. I see the look on your face. You already know what you're about to say. And like these people probably only have like a little bit of a base knowledge from like Islamic TikTok. Of course, we should be careful and, you know, call out when it's wrong. But when we are dragging people, 
and we are, you know, defaming their education, their image. What is your take on that? I think people need to mind their own business. Right. Uh, from the beautification and perfection of a person's Islam is leaving that which does not concern them. Now, you need to ask yourself the question, why are you putting yourself in a position that makes you feel like your opinion is so important for the rest of the ummah to hear? That's, I think, you know, we, we have a lot of arrogance within, and I've, you know, spent a lot of time studying Islam and being around the company of people who study and scholars and this and that, et cetera, et cetera. This crowd is not immune from arrogance. And there are people that feel that their personal, you know, understanding of of religion or a concept, et cetera, must be shared, must be followed, must be listened to. I have to comment on this. I have to say something. And this is really a, a disease of the heart where you, for some reason, think that you, so highly of yourself that your words should matter as much. And this is a real problem. This is a serious problem. Why do you feel that way in the first place? Who has appointed you uh, as the caretaker of, you know, <laughs> the sacred knowledge or whatever? There is a humility that comes with seeking knowledge. And one of the pitfalls of the student of knowledge, there are books written on this, which I don't think people read, uh, literally called the pitfalls of the student of knowledge. Uh, and they talk about this arrogance and this, you know, make, you know, you wanting that attention and then, you, you know, if you are a spiritual person, I think the last thing you want to seek is to be recognized. And I think that that's something that needs to go in, in the heart of every person. All of us want to be recognized. I mean, it's, it's a natural thing, but when it comes to the spiritual uh, you know, realm of like sharing sacred knowledge, it's like your goal should not be to be recognized. Your goal should be, you know, you can share, you can talk, you can uh, you know, the, the wonderful things that you have been blessed with, that's great. Talk about them, share about them. But when you feel threatened by somebody else and then you have to go attack them and then this and that because of what they say, there's no, look, there's no uh, uh, shortage of deviance in this world, right? Even in, in the, within Muslim circles, there are a lot of people doing some pretty bad things, sharing some horrible information, et cetera, et cetera. But you have to look at your circle of influence. Who are the people you can influence? And you also have to be honest with yourself about your degree of knowledge. Uh, if you are starting to learn, you need to keep your mouth more silent and your ears and heart more mm -hmm. open. It takes, uh, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu uh, he, he started receiving revelation. He wasn't told immediately to go and share with the massive, the masses, right? In the beginning, it was just people that were close to him. And it was, you know, and this is the Prophet Sallallahu right? He was already a wise uh, man. He was already the, the, you know, the perfect example of what it means to be a human being, even before his being, you know, uh, appointed as a prophet and messenger. But even then, you know, he was uh, told first and foremost to only talk to people that were close to him. Right? Talk to your, your close, you know, relatives and this and that, and that's what it was. And so, you know, the beauty that he had in the beginning, obviously it was just as much true as it was when he was told to go public with it, but he still was not told to go public with it. And so just because you learn something doesn't mean you have to go and convince the whole ummah and tell the whole world, no, like share it with the people you know and you love and Allah will guide you to a position if he wants uh, that will give you a, a, a platform. And one of the things I always warn people about is like self self platformization, I guess you could say. It's the very, you know, just be cautious of it that, you know, if, if uh, there's a saying, it's not a hadith or anything, I don't think it's a hadith, but it's a saying that I've heard plenty of scholars say, you know, man, uh, man talab shay'an, 
wukila ilay wa man tuliba li shay'in u'ina alayhi that whoever seeks a position will be entrusted to that position meaning you you're responsible now for 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 it but whoever is sought for a position will be assisted and helped right they they will be guided and assisted and helped and so rather than you know appointing yourself as a teacher or this or that like look for you know if if other people look towards you for that then that's a good sign that you should then you should share but you know again canceling someone does nothing uh talk and again a lot of this culture there there's there's a lot of uh, un-islamic etiquette that's being used there's a lot of ridicule there's a lot of mocking which again by the direct text of the quran you know whether or not a muslim person we have a history by the way of scholars disagreeing with each other vehemently on serious issues yeah. uh but and but they did it in a way that you know the books they wrote were not read by the masses they were read by the academics in their field right and so even today most people don't even read or have access to these books uh, and so they don't even understand like the etiquette with which they they debated each other and it was about the issue not about the person all that kind of stuff so you know we just we need a little bit more humility and a little bit less uh, self platformization or self promotion and, and that kind of stuff let Allah lead you somewhere uh, and then you know uh, th- that that'll be better for you. Mashallah, that's great. Because a lot of the questions they're like kind of you answer them with your responses. Like some of them were like, oh, you know about Islamic knowledge and stuff. So that was really good. We got lots of questions, but that is what <laughs> our time counted for. So Alhamdulillah, thank you so much for coming. I'm gonna post this. Let's see how it goes, and then Inshallah, here if it ends up well, I will force you to come back. Inshallah. More than happy to do so. Inshallah. Inshallah. All right. Thank you so much for coming. Take care. Assalamu alaikum. Okay. All right. Assalamu alaikum.